Section six of the Purple Cloud. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anise. The Purple Cloud by Matthew Phipps Scheel. Section six. A hundred yards inland from the shore rim, in a circular place where there was some moss and soil, I built myself a semi-subterranean Eskimo den for the long polar night. The spot was quite surrounded by high, sloping walls of basalt, except to the west where they opened in a three-foot cleft to the shore, and the ground was strewn with slabs and boulders of granite and basalt. I found there a dead she-bear, two well-grown cubs, and a fox, the latter having evidently fallen from the cliffs, in three places the snow was quite red overgrown with a red lichen, which at first I took for blood. I did not even yet feel secure from possible bears, and took care to make my den fairly tight, a work which occupied me nearly four weeks, for I had no tools, save a hatchet, knife, and metal-shod ski-staff. I dug a passage in the ground two feet wide, two deep, and ten long, with perpendicular sides, and at its north end a circular space, twelve feet across, also with perpendicular sides which I lined with stones. The whole excavation I covered with inch-thick walrus hide, skinned during a whole bitter week from four of a number that lay around the shore ice. For ridgepole I used a thin pointed rock which I found near, though even so the room remained nearly flat. This, when it was finished, I stocked well, putting in everything except the kayak, blubber to serve both for fuel and occasional light, and foods of several sorts, which I procured by merely stretching out the hand. The roof of both circular part and passage was soon buried under snow and ice, and hardly distinguishable from the general level of the white-clad ground. Through the passage, if I passed in or out, I crawled flat, on hands and knees, but that was rare, and in the little round interior, mostly sitting in a cowering attitude, I wintered, hearkening to the large and windy ravings of darkling December storms above me. All those months the burden of a thought bowed me, and an unanswered question, like the slow turning of a mechanism, revolved in my gloomy spirit, for everywhere around me lay bears, walruses, foxes, thousands upon thousands of little auks, kittiwakes, snow-owls, eider-ducks, gulls, dead, dead. Almost the only living things which I saw were some walruses on the drift floes, but very few compared with the number which I expected. It was clear to me that some inconceivable catastrophe had overtaken the island during the summer, destroying all life about it, except some few of the amphibia, cetacea, and crustacea. On the 5th December, having crept out from the den during a southern storm, I had for the third time a distant whiff of that self-same odor of peach-blossom, but now without any after-effects. Well, again came Christmas, the New Year, spring, and on the 22nd May I set out with a well-stocked kayak. The water was fairly open, and the ice so good that at one place I could sail the kayak over it, the wind sending me sliding at a fine pace. Being on the west coast of Franz Joseph Land, I was in as favorable a situation as possible, and I turned my bow southward with much hope, keeping a good many days just in sight of land. Toward the evening of my third day I noticed a large flat floe, 
presenting far off a singular and lovely sight, for it seemed freighted thick with a profusion of pink and white roses, showing in its clear crystal the empurpled reflection. And getting near, I saw that it was covered with millions of Ross's gulls, all dead, whose pretty rosy bosoms had given it that appearance. Up to the twenty-ninth June I made good progress southward and westward, the weather being mostly excellent, sometimes meeting dead bears, floating away on floes, sometimes dead or living walrus herds, with troop after troop of dead kittiwakes, glaucus, and ivory gulls, skuas, and every kind of arctic fowl. On that last day, the twenty-ninth June, I was about to encamp on a floe soon after midnight, when, happening to look toward the sun, my eye fell far away south across the ocean of floes upon something. The masts of a ship! A phantom ship, or a real ship, it was all one. Real, I must have instantly felt, it could not be. But at a sight so incredible, my heart set to beating in my bosom, as though I must surely die, and feebly waving the cane oar above my head, I staggered to my knees, and thence, with wry mouth, toppled flat. So overpoweringly sweet was the thought of springing once more, like the beasts of Circe, from a walrus into a man. At the time I was tearing my bear's meat just like a bear, I was washing my hands in walrus blood to produce a glary sort of pink cleanliness in place of the black grease which chronically coated them. Worn as I was, I made little delay to set out for that ship, and I had not travelled over water and ice four hours, when, to my indescribable joy, I made out from the top of a steep flow that she was the Boreal. It seemed most strange that she should be anywhere hereabouts. I could only conclude that she must have forced and drifted her way thus far westward out of the ice-block in which our party had left her, and perhaps now was loitering here in the hope of picking us up on our way to Spitzbergen. In any case, wild was the haste with which I fought my way to be at her, my gasping mouth all the time drawn back in a rictus of laughter at the anticipation of their gladness to see me, their excitement to hear the grand tidings of the pole attained. Anon I waved the paddle, though I knew that they could not yet see me, and then I dug deep at the whitish water. What astonished me was her mainsail and foremast square sail, set that calm morning, and her screws were still, for she moved not at all. The sun was abroad like a cold spirit of light, touching the great ocean room of flows with dazzling spots, and a tint almost of rose was on the world, as it were of a just-dead bride in her spangles and white array. The boreal was the one little distant jet-black spot in all this purity, and upon her as though she were heaven. I paddled, I panted. But she was in a queerish state. By nine a.m. I could see that. Two of the windmill arms were not there, and half lowered down her starboard beam a boat hung askew. Moreover, soon after ten, I could clearly see that her mainsail had a long rent down the middle. I could not at all make her out. She was not anchored, though a sheet anchor hung over at the starboard cathead. She was not moored, and two small ice-flows, one on each side, were sluggishly bombarding her bows. I began now to wave the paddle, battling for my breath, ecstatic, crazy with excitement, each second like a year to me. Very soon I could make out someone at the bows, leaning well over, looking my way. Something put it into my head that it was Sallet, and I began an impassioned shouting, "'Hi, Sallet! 
Hello, hi, I called. I did not see him move. I was still a good way off, but there he stood, leaning steadily over, looking my way. Between me and the ship now was all navigable water among the floes, and the sight of him so visibly near put into me such a shivering eagerness that I was nothing else but a madman for the time, sending the kayak flying with venomous digs and quick-repeated spurts, and mixing with the diggings my crazy wavings, and with both the daft shoutings of, "'Hello! Hi! Bravo! I have been to the pole!' Well, vanity, vanity. Nearer still I drew. It was broad morning, going on toward noon. I was half a mile away. I was fifty yards. But on board the boreal, though now they must have heard me, seen me, I observed no movement of welcome. But all, all was still as death, that still arctic morning, my God. Only the ragged sail flapped a little, and when on each side two ice-flows sluggishly bombarded the bows with hollow sounds. I was certain now that Sallet it was who looked across the ice, but when the ship swung a little round I noticed that the direction of his gaze was carried with her movement, he no longer looking my way. "'Why, Sallet!' I shouted reproachfully. "'Why, Sallet, man!' I whined. But even as I shouted and whined, a perfect wild certainty was in my heart, for an aroma like peach, my God, had been suddenly wafted from the ship upon me, and I must have very well known then that that watchful outlook of Sallet saw nothing, and on the boreal were dead men all. Indeed, very soon I saw one of his eyes looking like a glass eye which has slid askew and glares distraught, and now again my wretched body failed and my head dropped forward where I sat upon the kayak deck. Well, after a long time, I lifted myself to look again at that forlorn and wandering craft. There she lay, quiet, tragic, as it were culpable of the dark secret she bore, and Sallet, who had been such good friends with me, would not cease his stare. I knew quite well he was there. He had leant over to vomit, and had leant ever since his forearms pressed on the bulwark beam, his left knee against the boards, and his left shoulder propped on the cathead. When I came near, I saw that with every bump of the two flows against the bows, his face shook in response and nodded a little. Strange to say, he had no covering on his head, and I noted the play of the faint breezes in his uncut hair. After a time I would approach no more, for I was afraid I did not dare— the silence of the ship seemed so sacred and awful, until late afternoon I sat there, watching the black and massive hull. Above her water-line emerged all round a half-floating fringe of fresh green seaweed, proving old neglect, an abortive attempt had apparently been made to lower or take in the larchwood pram, for there she hung by a jammed davit-rope, stern up, bow in the water. The only two arms of the windmill moved this way and that, through some three degrees, with an andante creaking sing-song. Some washed clothes, tied on the bowsprit rigging to dry, were still there. The iron casing all round the bluff bows was red and rough with rust. At several points the rigging was in considerable tangle. Occasionally the boom moved a little, with a tortured, skirling cadence, and the sail, rotten, I presume, from exposure, for she had certainly encountered no bad weather, gave out anon a heavy, languid flap, 
at a rent down the middle. Besides Sallet, looking out there where he had jammed himself, I saw no one. By a paddle-stroke now, and another presently, I had closely approached her about four in the afternoon, though my awe of the ship was complicated by that perfume of hers whose fearful effects I knew. My tentative approach, however, proved to me, when I remained unaffected, that here and now whatever danger there had been was past, and finally, by a hanging rope, with a thumping desperation of heart, I clambered up her beam. They had died, it seemed, very suddenly, for nearly all the twelve were in poses of activity. Egan was in the very act of ascending the companionway. Lambern was sitting against the chart-room door, apparently cleaning two carbines. Oddling, at the bottom of the engine-room stair, seemed to be drawing on a pair of reindeer commagar, and Cartwright, who was often in liquor, had his arms frozen tight round the neck of Martin, whom he seemed to be kissing, they too lying stark at the foot of the mizzenmast. Over all, over men, decks, rope-coils, in the cabin, in the engine-room, between skylight leaves, on every shelf, in every cranny, lay a purplish ash or dust, very impalpably fine, and steadily raining throughout the ship, like the very spirit of death, was that aroma of peach-blossom. Here it had rained, as I could see from the log-dates, from the rust on the machinery, from the look on the bodies, from a hundred indications, during something over a year. It was, therefore, mainly by the random workings of winds and currents, that this fragrant ship of death had been brought hither to me. And this was the first direct intimation which I had, that the unseen powers, whoever and whatever they may be, who through the history of the world had been so very, very careful to conceal their hand from the eyes of men, hardly any longer intended to be at the pains to conceal their hand from me. It was just as though the boreal had been openly presented to me by a spiritual agency, which, though I could not see it, I could readily apprehend. The dust, though very thin and flighty above decks, lay thickly deposited below, and after having made a tour of investigation throughout the ship, the first thing which I did was to examine that, though I had tasted nothing all day and was exhausted to death. I found my own microscope where I had left it in the box at my berth to starboard, though I had to lift up Egan to get at it, and to step over Lambern to enter the chart-room. But there, toward evening, I sat at the table and bent to see if I could make anything of the dust, while it seemed to me as if all the myriad spirits of men that have sojourned on the earth, and angel and devil, in all time and all eternity, hung silent round for my decision, and such an egg had me, that for a long time my wandering finger-tips, all ataxic with agitation, eluded every delicate effort which I made, and I could nothing do. Of course I know that an odor of peach-blossom in the air resulting in death could only be associated with some vaporous effluvian of cyanogen, or of hydrocyanic, prussic, acid, or of both and when I at last managed to examine some of the dust under the microscope, I was not therefore surprised to find, among the general mass of purplish ash, a number of bright yellow particles, which could only be minute crystals of potassic ferrocyanide. What potassic ferrocyanide was doing on board the boreal I did not know, and I had neither the means nor the force of mind, alas, 
to dive then further into the mystery, I understood only that by some extraordinary means the air of the region, just south of the polar environs, had been impregnated with a vapor which was either cyanogen or some product of cyanogen, also that this deadly vapor, which is very soluble, had by now either been dissolved by the sea or else dispersed into space, probably the latter, leaving only its faint after-perfume. And seeing this, I let my poor abandoned head drop again on the table, and long hours I sat there, staring mad, for I had a suspicion, my God, and a fear in my breast. The boreal I found contained sufficient provisions, untouched by the dust, in cases, casks, etc., to last me probably fifty years. After two days, when I had partially scrubbed and boiled the filth of fifteen months from my skin, and solaced myself with better food, I overhauled her thoroughly, and spent three more days in oiling and cleaning the engine. Then all being ready, I dragged my twelve dead, and laid them together in two rows on the chart-room floor, and I hoisted for love the poor little kayak which had served me through so many tribulations. At nine in the morning of the 6th July, a week from my first sighting of the boreal, I descended into the engine-room to set out. The screws, like those of most quite modern ships, were driven by the simple contrivance of a constant stream of liquid air, contained in very powerful tanks, exploding through capillary tubes into non-expansion slide-valve chests, much as in the ordinary way with steam, a motor which gave her, in spite of her bluff hulk, a speed of sixteen knots. It is, therefore, the simplest thing for one man to take these ships round the world, since their movement or stopping depend on nothing but the depressing or raising of a steel handle, provided that one does not get blown to the sky meantime, as liquid air, in spite of its thousand advantages, occasionally blows people. At any rate, I had tanks of air sufficient to last me through twelve years' voyaging, and there was the ordinary machine on board for making it, with forty tons of coal, case of need, in the bunkers, and two excellent Belleville boilers. So I was well supplied with motors, at least. The ice here was quite slack, and I do not think I ever saw Arctic weather so bright and gay, the temperature at forty-one degrees. I found that I was midway between Franz Joseph and Spitzbergen, in latitude seventy-nine degrees twenty-three north, and longitude thirty-nine degrees east. My way was perfectly clear, and something almost like a mournful hopefulness was in me as the engines slid into their clanking turmoil, and those long silent screws began to churn the Arctic sea. I ran up with alacrity and took my stand at the wheel, and the bows of my eventful Argo turned southward and westward. When I needed food or sleep, the ship slept too. When I awoke, she continued her way. Sixteen hours a day sometimes, I stood sentinel at that wheel, overlooking the varied monotony of the ice sea, till my knees would give, and I wondered why a wheel at which one might sit was not contrived, rather delicate steering being often required among the floes and bergs. By now, however, I was less weighted with my ball of polar clothes, and stood almost slim in a lap greatcoat, a round Siberian fur cap on my head. At midnight, when I threw myself into my old berth, it was just as though the engines, subsided now into silence, were a dead thing, and had a ghost which haunted me, for I heard them still, and yet not them, but the silence of their ghost. 
Sometimes I would startle from sleep, horrified to the heart at some sound of exploding iceberg or bumping flow, nosing far through that white mystery of quietude, where the flows and bergs were as floating tombs, and the world a liquid cemetery. Never could I describe the strange doomsday shock with which such a sound would recall me from far depths of chaos to recollection of myself. For oftentimes, both waking and in nightmare, I did not know on which planet I was, nor in which age, but felt myself adrift in the great gulf of time and space and circumstance, without bottom for my consciousness to stand upon, and the world was all mirage and a new show to me, and the boundaries of dream and waking lost. Well, the weather was most fair all the time, and the sea like a pond, during the morning of the fifth day, the 11th July, I entered and went moving down an extraordinarily long avenue of snowbergs and floes, most regularly placed half a mile across and miles long, like a titanic double procession of statues, or the Ming tombs, but rising and sinking on the cadenced swell, many towering high, throwing placid shadows on the aisle between, some being of a lucid emerald tint, and three or four pouring down cascades that gave a far and chaunting sound. The sea between us was of a strange, thick bluishness, almost like raw egg-white, while, as always here, some snow-clouds, white and woolly, floated in the pale sky. Down this avenue, which produced a mysterious impression of cyclopean cathedrals and odd sequesteredness, I had not passed a mile when I sighted a black object at the end. I rushed to the shrouds, and very soon made out a whaler. Again the same panting agitations. Mad rage to be at her at once possessed me. I flew to the indicator, turned the level to full, then back to give the wheel a spin, then up the main-mast ratlins, waving a long foot-bandage of vadmel tweed picked up at random, and by the time I was within five hundred yards of her, had worked myself to such a pitch that I was again shouting that futile madness. Hello! Hi! Bravo! I have been to the pole! And those twelve dead that I had in the chart-room there must have heard me, and the men on the whaler must have heard me, and smiled their smile. For as to that whaler, I should have known better at once, if I had not been crazy, that she looked like a ship of death, her boom slamming to port and starboard on the gentle heave of the sea, and her foresail reefed that serene morning. Only when I was quite near her, and hurrying down to stop the engines, did the real truth, with perfect suddenness, drench my heated brain, and I almost ran into her I was so stunned. However, I stopped the boreal in time, and later on lowered the kayak and boarded the other. The ship had evidently been stricken silent in the midst of a perfect drama of activity, for I saw not one of her crew of sixty-two who was not busy, except one boy— I found her a good-sized thing of five hundred-odd tons, ship-rigged, with auxiliary engine of seventy horsepower, and pretty heavily armor-plated around the bows. There was no part of her which I did not overhaul, and I could see that they had had a great time with whales, for a mighty carcass attached to the outside of the ship by the powerful can't-purchase tackle had been in process of flensing and cutting in, and on the deck two great blankets of blubber looking each a ton weight, surrounded by twenty-seven men in many attitudes, some terrifying to see, 
some disgusting, several grotesque, all so unhuman, the whale dead, and the men dead too, and death was there, and the rank flourishing germs of inanity, and a mesmerism, and a silence, whose dominion was established, and its reign was growing old. Four of them, who had been removing the gums from a mass of stratified whalebone at the mizzenmast foot, were quite embedded in whale-flesh. Also, on a barrel lashed to the top of the main top-gallant masthead, was visible the head of a man with a long, pointed beard, looking steadily out over the sea to the southwest, which made me notice that five only of the probable eight or nine boats were on board, and after visiting the tween-decks, where I saw considerable quantities of stowed whalebone plates, and about fifty or sixty iron oil-tanks and cut-up blubber, and after visiting cabin, engine-room, forecastle, where I saw a lonely boy of fourteen with his hand grasping a bottle of rum under all the turned-up clothes in a chest, he at the moment of death being evidently intent upon hiding it, and after two hours' search of the ship, I got back to my own, and half an hour later came upon all the three missing whale-boats, about a mile apart, and steered zigzag near to each. They contained five men each and a steerer, and one had the harpoon gun fired, with a loose line coiled round and round the head and upper part of the stroke line manager, and in the other hundreds of fathoms of coiled rope, with toggle-irons, whale-lances, hand-harpoons, and dropped heads and grins, and lazy abandon, and eyes that stared, and eyes that dozed, and eyes that winked. After this I began to sight ships, not infrequently, and used regularly to have the three lights burning all night. On the twelfth July I met one, on the fifteenth two, on the sixteenth one, on the seventeenth three, on the eighteenth two, all Greenlanders, I think, but of the nine I boarded only three, the glass quite clearly showing me, when yet far off, that on the others was no life, and on the three which I boarded were dead men, so that that suspicion which I had and that fear grew very heavy upon me. I went on southward, day after day southward, sentinel there at my wheel, clear sunshine by day, when the calm pale sea sometimes seemed mixed with regions of milk, and at night the immense desolation of a world lit by a sun that was long dead, and by a light that was gloom. It was like night blanched in death then, and wan is the very kingdom of death and Hades, I have seen it, most terrifying, that neuter state and limbo of nothingness, when unreal sea and spectral sky, all boundaries lost, mingled in a vast shadowy void of ghastly phantasmagoria, pale to utter hewlessness, at whose centre I, as if annihilated, seemed to swoon in immensity of space. Into this disembodied world would come anon waftures of that peachy scent which I knew, and their frequency rapidly grew. But still the boreal moved, traversing, as it were, bottomless eternity, and I reached altitude seventy-two degrees, not far now from northern Europe, and now, as to that blossomy peach scent, even while some flows were yet around me, I was just like some fantastic mariner who, having set out to search for Eden and the blessed islands, finds them, 
and balmy gales from their gardens come out, while he is yet afar, to meet him with their perfumes of almond and champac, cornel and jasmine and lotus. For I had now reached a zone where the peach aroma was constant. All the world seemed embalmed in its spicy fragrance, and I could easily imagine myself voyaging beyond the world towards some clime of perpetual and enchanting spring. End of section six. Recording by Anise, Portland, Oregon. www.strange-medicine.com.